Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. First time I met Dom Cummings, and he said, you know, is this the way that we should be doing modern government? You know, is this complex security decisions and the very difficult trade-offs between offensive advantage and protective security. Client to innovation, my risk threshold is high, are really interesting topics about which I feel personally. Hello and welcome to the Creative Tech Podcast, where we discuss how technology can help you to be more creative. This podcast is made by the National Centre for Creativity, enabled by AI which is a bit of a mouthful, so we call it CBAE for short. It's presented by the director of CBAE, Professor Neil Maiden. Neil, who's in the studio today? Today I am delighted to talk with someone who I've known and respected for most of my professional life. Sir Professor Anthony Finkelstein, CBE, is the current president of City University of London. He has a long and distinguished career as a computer scientist, one that has specialised in developing new methods and tools for software engineering. His research has been recognised many times over. For example, he is an elected Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering and an appointed Commander of the Order of the British Empire for Services to Computer Science and Engineering. Moreover, from 2015 to 2021, Anthony was Chief Scientific Advisor for National Security to Her Majesty's Government here in the United Kingdom. And one of his undoubted professional highlights was the opportunity to act as the external examiner on my PhD back in 1992. Anthony, good morning. How are you? I'm fine. I like the um, have known and respected, you know, because you could always say, you know, I've known him uh, for a long time and respected him for some of it, uh, which would be a good way to start. Well, no, I think that's unfair. I don't have to make things up. It's my podcast. I can say whatever I like in the sort of spirit of right-wing jocks. 
Where are you today, Anthony? Well, today's unfortunately a public transport strike in London. And so I'm camping at the headquarters of Universities UK, where I'm undergoing a training session today for new university presidents, which should be interesting. I don't know what it involves, you know, catering contracts and firefighting and mortal combat with the weaponry of your choice. I'll learn a bit more later. Well, I think you should let the city staff know that you go on these training courses. It might act as a bit of a spur for the rest of us to go on our heavy lifting of objects courses and so on, which we often try and put off. Do you get much of a chance to go back into academic research in computer science and software engineering? Do you miss that if you if you are not able to? Actually, it's quite interesting because my career has gone a bit in phases. So when I was a head of department at UCL, I, I got a fair amount of time still to keep up with my research in the area. And I think that faded a little bit when I was dean of engineering. But then when I became a chief scientific advisor, I actually got a lot of applied technological challenges. And I really enjoyed that mixture of strategy, but also, you know, problem solving, really satisfying. Mm. Um, since I've started as president, I'm quite worked out what I'll be able to manage and what I won't be able to manage. But I actually have started a really enjoyable bit of technical collaboration, actually with an economist, which has proved really fascinating. And it's on security decision making, how you make complex security decisions and the very difficult trade-offs between offensive advantage and protective security. And it's a great mixture of all of my interests. So I'm, I'm quite excited. If tech isn't a part of what I do, then I really miss it. This new project sounds genuinely interdisciplinary, the type of project we're looking to encourage more of in the university. Yeah, indeed. And in fact, the problem is a very interesting and complicated one. Potentially, I think there's a lot of room for other bits of decision science, for some behavioral sciences. So I'm really interested in it. I mean, actually, there's a good segue across to some of your interest in creativity because security and security operations is an area where actually there are large amounts of sort of operational creativity and so some real interesting scope Mm. for the play of the sort of things that you're interested in from a disciplinary point of view. That sounds interesting. We did do some work 15 years ago with some security researchers in another university looking at how we can introduce creativity to explore unforeseen threat. So happy to go back to that. In some senses, protective security is very much about discipline, rigor, caring management, and so on. But the more opportunistic side of security, getting one up on adversaries, Mm. is a very strongly creative Mm. component because what you're trying to do is do things that an adversary would not imagine you are capable of doing that sort of beyond their imaginative scope. Indeed. Indeed. So as I said in the introduction, you worked in government for more than five years. How did that come about? Well, I mean, I'd always know that the UK government had these chief scientific advisor roles. I mean, now we more people are aware of it because of their involvement in the COVID crisis. So I was always aware of that. And I'd always sort of thought in the back of my head, wow, those seem like interesting roles. And I certainly had a sort of public service itch that I thought I might want to scratch. And then the opportunity came up and 
I always say that I gave it mature consideration for about five milliseconds, <laughs> um, uh, which by my standards is, is uh, quite a long time. And said, yeah, what the hell? I mean, then there was quite a lengthy process, but it seemed like the right thing. And the fact was that it also landed just at the right point in my mm. career. I'd done quite a lot of sort of traditional management roles and I was quite interested in the idea of how you might get things done using influence rather than sort of the traditional sort of tools of management. And this was an opportunity to do precisely that. Mm. So there is a widespread and perhaps unfair perception that governments cannot create or innovate as effectively as other types of agency. You've been in government during some very interesting times. Do you think that lazy perception is, is fair? Uh, I think the picture is much more complicated mm. than that simple characterization. On the one hand, government can be extraordinarily creative in the operational moment when, you know, DEFRA are confronted with flooding or people in health are confronted with a global pandemic or when the militaries are confronted with a changed defence mm. situation, all of these things. You see actually people deploy tremendous amounts of creative and innovative capacity. Mm. But when it comes to institutional innovation mm. and systems creativity and innovation, things tend to gum up. And the barriers to that are skills, they are institutional blockers, they are cultural blockers, and there are complex political constraints mm. that operate. So I'd say there are two domains, and tremendous creativity at the sharp end mm. and a degree of stasis at the back end. Uh-huh. Is it fair to say that a lot of that front-end creativity is often delivered by local government's mayors because they're closer to the situations where you might have flooding or some outbreak of mad cow disease or, or something? Is that is that fair or not? Uh, no, no, I'm not sure that it's about the nature of government. I mean, the immediacy of the challenge mm. and the direct responsibilities of people to act on those challenges is what counts. So I'm not sure that it's local versus, you know, Whitehall. It's more to do with in the operational moment, people are licensed to be creative. And then when it comes to this larger picture, Mm. they feel they are more constrained. Mm. You did list quite a large number of types of constraints on creativity and innovation a few minutes ago. Does that paint a rather bleak picture for innovation in government in the future? Because it would require at least a degree of overcoming of many of these challenges, and they feel generational to me. So firstly, knowing me for a long time, you know that basically I'm a glass-half-full person. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm constitutionally optimistic. (laughs) So I don't think that some of these things are are without the possibility of change. So I think that... We can change structures and institutions. We can upskill individuals. We can change Mm -hmm. political discourse and so on. So I do think that some of those things are 
possible. You know, it's a slow, but it's a steady march towards improving things. I very much share your belief that tools and methods and improved scientific understanding will yield progress. I'm not a pessimist. Okay. So being optimistic and drawing on your experience of those five or six years in government, what kinds of innovation or perhaps what kinds of innovation strategies should governments be looking to implement to be more successful? Have you got a feel of that? Oh, oh gosh, a range of things. I mean, the first thing to say is actually, I think training helps. Mm -hmm. That makes a difference. I think building a network of key senior stakeholders mm. for this who have an understanding of the issues helps. I think that there are innovations in terms of structural mm. um, things and in terms of how budgets are managed. Mm -hmm. That can make a difference. I mean, one of the the large constraints for innovation in government is actually how budgeting operates. I think that some of the mechanisms like sort of so-called engine B type innovations or sort of challenger type innovations where you spin out an activity yeah. into an external entity, I think that helps. I think there's a lot of things that can be done with yeah. also bringing external organizations in, yeah. in different ways. So I think there's quite a lot that can be done, all the stuff around prizes and rewards and incentives obviously makes a big difference. And I'm not also averse to, you know, a little bit of top-down creative destruction. <laughs> uh, I think that often has an effect. So... May come back um, later. Good. Okay. Uh, the, top of, the top of your list, you said improved training would that be training to make people more aware of their creative potential of what innovation actually is rather than some mythical view of it or is it something more domain specific in your view or is it both um i think a little bit of both i think that i have seen in government for example people receiving training in methods for agile innovation mm. and for managing that process, which have yielded significant benefits, I think, as the result, people are better. I think that people get better with practice and with the introduction of new tools, mm. both digital and conceptual. So, yes, I think that's okay. a, uh, a way of improving things. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you say in the past that governments can be poor at what you've called structural innovation. Do you believe that the kinds of change that you've just articulated are a means or potential means to overcome some of the problems with structural innovation that sticks over time? Yes, it's the challenge of how do you bridge between the sharp end innovation I described mm. and making quite sure that things persist that they are diffused across a large organization, that they're adapted and enhanced, that learning is continually fed, mm. fed back. So I think a fairly standard model is that somebody somewhere introduces a new approach, a new method, a new tool, has a new idea, and they develop it. And it's used locally for a while, but it never receives the investment or innovation or mm -hmm. it's never diffused. It's never raised to the institutional level. The surrounding systems infrastructure you need to get these things to be successful isn't built. And after a while, it dies out. Or another mode that things happen is that 
a small innovation unit is set up. They innovate, they get things done, but the funding runs out. They're not well plugged into the remaining units. And that, that, that's a really common mode mm-hmm. across government. It's local, the key uh, person responsible for it moves on and mm-hmm. things run into the ground. And I'm really sensing your glass full, full view that there's quite a lot of maybe not low-hanging fruit, but fruit that can be reached with directed investment and, and planning in government. Without, you know, without question, I mean, there's a lot of the stuff that needs doing on this is not rocket science. Yeah. Um, and indeed, there are also, you know, models both within the UK and actually there are global models indeed. which can be drawn on to improve things. So one of the things that I did when I was in government was to use strategic venture capital within government as a way of bringing innovation in from outside. Mm. And that's actually a whole range of things. That's actually directly importing technology. It's supporting the UK ecosystem, but it's also bringing different kinds of actors to the table. And there's a virtuous circle between government as first customer Mm. and Mm. startups bringing new innovation Mm. to the table and creative possibilities. So there are mechanisms like that that can be used. And that was basically a copy in the UK of a successful US model adjusted for the different UK financial and other structures. Fascinating. It does make you think, do you think there are useful parallels between your time in government and trying to bring about change in, in higher education, how we innovate within our own sector? For definite, yes. You know, some of the things I said earlier about innovation which happens locally but doesn't make its way into more structural and systemic innovation. So, you know, the classic example that somewhere in the corner somebody develops a course which comprises a degree of novel innovation and does things in a slightly different way, but it remains local. There are larger benefits and lessons from that don't trickle up and so on, and rather we get things constrained. So I think there are ways in which we could really address that. Do we see City University of London as an interesting test bed for some of these next these ideas over the next few years? Well, as you know, I'm inclined to innovation. My risk threshold is high. I like giving things a whack and I'm I'm not that afraid of so failing or you know, on some of those things, obviously. So definitely we're really well placed, you know, institutionally to innovate. One of the challenges, and this is true also in, in all the organizations, which is what you have to do is um, create the space for innovation. If you're so busy peddling hard on the immediate thing mm. that there isn't the space mm-hmm. to innovate and create and fail, then you've got a problem. So, I mean, this is true actually of government and universities. Mm-hmm. That in order to innovate, you've got to create space. I think that often organizations really need what I call the Marie Kondo moment. <laughs> it's basically she's sort of expert on tidying up and she has a whole philosophy built around this idea of tidying up. And the idea is that you, you take everything out of your cupboards and then you look at each 
thing and you go, does it fully emotionally satisfy me? Do I love it? And if the answer to that is no, you thank it for its service and you put it in the bin. Somehow what you do is it clears the mental space and allows you then to do new things. Now, she's got a much more emotional and elevated philosophy of what mm-hmm. that's about. Mm-hmm. But many big organizations just need a Marie Kondo moment when they take everything out of the box and look at it and go, does this give us the emotional of a return that it should? And if not, we say, thank you and dispose of it. And, you know, I think quite often as in universities, you know, you take, need to take all of those programs and modules and practices and policies out of the box and look at them and go, are they things we're really, you know, emotionally committed to? Are they can mm. still contribute into our mission and our values and everything like that? And if not, we'll say they were great. They were great in their time. They did a really good job for us. That program was excellent. But now it's gone. And then you create that mental space. where you can be, let's be honest, you know, a resource and other space where you can do that. And so I think there's something to take from that. But on the other hand, Marie Kondo says that you should stack your T-shirts vertically, and that's quite frankly bonkers. No, it's bonkers. Mine fall over. Mine are not that well starched. So for our readers who are unfamiliar with Marie Kondo, we'll put in some links and examples in the show notes. I never thought I'd say that. <laughs> More academic life. Going back to your time in government, you mentioned the, the the example of the strategic capital investment based on an existing US model as one example. Do you think generally we lack enough examples of how, or case studies perhaps is the word I'm looking for, of how governments can innovate effectively? Yes, I think actually, I think that is the case. Maybe some of that is a little bit about we do it successfully and locally and we don't champion them as models and put the innovation around those things. I don't think this is purely a UK issue. I think this may be more broader, which is an issue of timescales. I mean, institutional change and innovation takes time, but... Sometimes the political and funding timescales are much shorter. Mm-hmm. And that means that things don't happen that should. I think that some of the models that we see of successful government innovation have taken necessarily 10, 12, 15 years mm-hmm. to be effective. Those are timescales that are certainly longer than the cycle of one minister. You know, they're longer than the cycle of even a government longer budget cycles, let alone an annualized budget cycle. So patience, interesting to think about this. You provoked me to this. In some ways, we have built in the rapidity, rapid cycling, uh, uh, workshop it to, you know, all of that stuff. But actually, of course, true innovation and creativity often takes a long, long long amount of time Mm. to really bed in as you evolve and change and as the system coheres around your innovation and all of those things. Understanding that is also really important. Probably that particular innovation is one of the things I'm very proud of that. That work, I mean, it wasn't just mine, it was a whole series of people 
got reason to be justifiably proud, it would be very difficult to really judge it for 12, 15 years. Which makes it hard for us to talk about meaningful examples and case studies that can be published and shared in the traditional ways. They are just so vast and... Yeah, also it might suggest that we need to look a bit further back and look at things which we go, oh, are working now and seem like they're just part of the fabric, Mm -hmm. but actually these were at at the moment innovation. Mm -hmm. So those things which have really survived and become institutionalized, Mm -hmm. we perhaps cease to think of them as what they were, which is quite sharp innovations at the time that they were introduced. So it'd be interesting to reflect on on those things. Indeed, indeed. Are there any obvious examples of projects that you can think of which were successful 15, 20 years ago, which we now take for granted, even though they were creative at the time? Gosh, it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, that's quite an... <laughs> my, my inability to to immediately answer that question is actually really indicative Mm. of of the earlier discussion that it's quite difficult to pull those things out because they seem somehow so much part of what we always do. Mm. So I think, for example, in the business school domain and looking at academia, Mm. the specialist master's degrees in business topics were actually quite a sharp innovation at the time those were introduced. And now we just think of those as being part of the general scene. We also always underestimate how long these things take to bed Mm. in. I remember I did my first online digital teaching 20 years ago. May have been even more, but certainly 20 years ago on something that was called LiveNet. It was an ISDN network across the colleges of the University of London. I taught human-to-computer interaction, actually, I think. And only now we're still sort of thinking of it as something that's embedding. So really, uh, sensitivity to timelines is important. Mm. That's an interesting problem to take back to some of my colleagues in the Bayes Business School to reflect on that. There's possibly work out there that I'm unfamiliar with. The front end of the innovation process happening and then somehow us not being sufficiently aware of the length of the process which then succeeds that for an innovation to really embed is important. And it may be that as people who share an interest in that area, we're a little bit responsible for that, of, mm. of not thinking about the long haul, because we're people who like the idea generation, synthesis, all of those sort of things. No, it's interesting because within CBay, it's very much a, a project to deliver knowledge exchange. So we are in from at least the medium haul, if not the long haul. And I, I do yeah. sometimes sense that frustration because that's not, not the way I'm engineered. Earlier on, you mentioned creative destruction. So I have to ask, I suspect you worked with Dominic Cummings when you were in government, you were there at the same time, and he clearly sees himself as a creative renegade, a person who's there to challenge the status quo. Do you think in your experience there's a role for such creative individuals in government? I think there absolutely is a role for that sort of individual in government. Downing Street has an immense convening and energising capability. So having people there who are dedicated to that is immensely powerful. And they've been you know, in government a small 
network of political advisors and others who played that role. And I think I think that's an immensely important role for government to have. This is not to comment on any of the politics or any of the question of, of method or manner, but is simply to say that creative individuals of all stripes have a really important role. And when you have those people in positions of influence and power, albeit briefly, they can get a tremendous amount done. And I recall the first time I met Don Cummings, I met him in Cabinet Room in Downing Street. And it's a beautiful, rather elegant room looking out on horse guards. And he said, look at this, unchanged since the 18th century. Is this the way that we should be doing modern government? You know, is, is this the decision-making environment of the 21st century and people sitting there making vastly important decisions for our futures? Is this the best we can do in the 21st century? I've got to admit, you know, I thought, yes, that is the sort of question mm. which we should be asking. And his passion about how government should be done and his willingness to question those things, albeit in a very particular style on which I don't want to comment on, but I do want to say how amazing and refreshing when I confronted that, I found that voice. Mm. And it's one I recognised from yeah, sure. somewhat iconoclastic colleagues who often are, are sort of right on the essence. Yeah, I know. So the role for creative disruptors in all kinds of organisations, including governments, is there. It should yeah. be supported and somehow it's difficult to think if it becomes more normalised, is it still a creative disruptor? There's you know, uh, uh, obviously, you know, you have room for all sorts of different characters. And I think there's a question mark as to whether or not in government we have quite the right mix of personality and skills we need. I mean, there are so many brilliant people I worked with, mm. skilled in all sorts of amazing ways, technically skilled skilled in management and in building consensus and in arriving at complex programs of activity and seeing those through. Uh, those people are absolutely necessary in large numbers and at the most senior levels. Uh, but is that the totality of what's needed? I'm not sure it is. Uh, of course not. Maybe there's another podcast to be had around developing what is needed, but I conscious of the time and it's been fascinating to talk to you Anthony on these subjects you know these are really interesting topics about which I feel passionately of course so just to wrap up our podcast at CBay we like to build technology that we hope can support creative problem solving using tools that people can use every day more ideas more often form of creativity on demand if you like so we usually wrap up each podcast by testing your creativity, Anthony, in this case, uh, your creativity on demand with three questions. And here goes, we're looking for short, sharp answers. The first is, what is the most important thing you need in order to be creative? A fountain pen. A fountain pen. Excellent. Thank you. If you could create any new tech or app that could do anything real or imaginary, what would it be? Um, gosh. That's a really interesting question. So for me, the biggest personal challenges to stop me looking down um, at my tech and 
help me to look up. So I think I need something which helps me with the looking down and looking up. And that for in deliberate integrative thinking, that's something we could maybe get a student project to look at. I like that. That sounds, that sounds good. I like that term, deliberative integrative thinking. Oh, it's academic, isn't it? We can come up with yeah. all day. And my third question yeah. is, if you could remove one thing from the world to make people more creative, what would it be? If I could remove one thing from the world to make people more creative, PowerPoint. You're not the first person to have said that. There's a movement here. PowerPoint will go. An integrative thinking app and yeah. along with fountain pens. Perfect. That makes me that a whole combination of those things make me feel like a terrible old fart. And like <laughs> like I'm not a computer scientist who loves tech, which I am. So it's uh, we quite know how we love good I, tech, Anthony. We love good tech. tech. That's the important thing. Yeah, maybe I, maybe that's a confession. Maybe I like uh, tech. We apologise to any listeners for any way but soft. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Anthony, it's been lovely to talk to you. One last question: What's next for you on the innovation front? What's next for me on the innovation front? Oh, definitely helping City to be really differentiated in a very homogenized higher education sector. How can we do that? Looking forward to being part of that with you. And if any of our listeners want to find any more about you and your work, is there a particular place that they can go? Finkelstein.uk and all my papers are there and a bit of personal profile and everything like that. Or um, my blog, Prof Serious. There's a current blog and there's a um, historic blog, so you can find out more than you would wish to know. We shall put that in the uh, show notes for those that are serious Finkelstein fans. Thank you. For <laughs> Thank you for taking time to okay. talk to us today. It's been fascinating. It's a pleasure. And thank you to everyone for listening to the Creative Tech Podcast from Seabay. Check the show notes for links and any other stuff we've talked about today. And please take time to like the podcast and leave a review. It really does make a difference. You can follow us on Twitter at Seabay Center. That's C-E-B-A-I Center. Or on LinkedIn, Creativity Enabled by AI. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.